Now, we believe in the all-knowing and all-seeing God. Have you ever wondered what's uh, written about you in God's book of life? I just want you to imagine for a few moments um, what you might want to be airbrushed out or edited. Or would you like um, everyone to see a full account of what the Lord knows about us? I certainly wouldn't. Well, I was just wondering um, this evening if we could just imagine for a few moments that we have David in front of us, King David. And I can't do the accent, but David, this is your life. You were born in Bethlehem in the land of Judah, the eighth son of Jesse. You came from humble beginnings, a shepherd by trade, but you had a meteoric rise to kingship. History shows that kingship was built on shaky foundations. The people of Israel had asked Samuel for a king, and God reluctantly gave them a king. Wasn't he good enough for them, he thought? It displeased God. The people maybe got what they deserved. They got Saul. As you know from bitter experience... He was uh, not a great king, was he? And was eventually rejected by God, 1 Samuel 15. David, you were anointed as king and supposed to succeed him. You must admit that you were a rather unlikely choice, weren't you? All your seven brothers got to go first and somehow they ended up with you. Not quite a beauty pageant. Although I understand people tell me that you're handsome, maybe a bit of a pin-up boy, when God was choosing someone through Samuel, that wasn't the qualities that he was looking for. Samuel was told in 1 Samuel 16 verse 7, not to consider outward appearance, The Lord looks to the heart. It's a godly principle that should apply to all of us when we're choosing leaders or members of our team. The Bible remembers you, David, despite what you've done in your life as a man after God's own heart. We can only wonder how it must have felt that moment when you were anointed, 1 Samuel 16, to be king and the power that came on high for you to achieve the things that you've achieved. You learnt your leadership through shepherding. It's so unfair to the ordinary folks in this room, but you're multi-talented. You could do music and poetry and all those other things that some of us dream of being able to do. Most famously, I'll remember you as the giant slayer, the one that killed Goliath. We're so sorry that your best friend, Jonathan, can't be here to join us this evening. You may not grieve so much for his father. Both of them came to a bad and untimely end. 
His father burned with jealousy, as you know, as he pursued you and made it his life's ambition to kill you. Not everyone can quite believe, in fact, I don't know anyone who can believe, that when you had the opportunity to kill his father Saul, you didn't take it and cut his garment instead. You're the great unification king, the one that the people of Israel had longed for, brought Judah and Israel together. Weren't you a little bit embarrassed when you danced with nothing on before the ark when you led it into Jerusalem? You're such a popular king, a warrior, triumphant king. As uncomfortable as this will feel to outside observers, we puzzle about why you could chuck all that away and fall such a long way from grace. May I humbly and fearfully suggest that you lost your primary focus. As a consequence, you sent others to find, fight your battles for you. And here we are today, reflecting on your life. We're going to look at the passage from 2 Samuel 11. Verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. And I sort of puzzle. It feels as though there was like a a season for this to go out to battle. They didn't do fighting in the winter. They saved it uh, for the spring. It sounds a little bit like not quite the same in our country, but let's go fishing in May or um, stag shooting or whatever you do, whenever they do that, or the glorious 12th. But was this sport for the kings? They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But you, David, you remained in Jerusalem, in your palace, in your penthouse, when everyone was out there fighting for the country. It's a story that highlights vulnerability, particularly when we're successful and have power. We're reminded through it that even the anointed and the chosen ones and the most anointed and maybe the most chosen ones can fall from grace. David, I suspect, never wanted this chapter to be written about him. I suspect there's many chapters that we don't want to be written about us. But it is, and we can learn from it. It clouds how I view David. But God is able to use David and able to use us even when we fall from grace. I've got a little example here that I might need someone to help with. 
And uh, my little illustration is the domino effect of sin. So if anyone likes toppling dominoes, I might let you come in a few moments. May I suggest that David was bored. He went on a midnight walk, verse 2. David, this warrior king, didn't have anything much to do with his time. So he thought, well, I'll just take someone else's wife. Maybe he sees this beautiful woman. Um, He knows who she is because he's told in verse 3 that she's Bathsheba. She's someone's daughter and she's someone's wife, Uriah the Hittite. David had plenty of wives and concubines. He sent for her with the intention of sleeping with her. To me, this is an abuse of power. But how can she deny the king? What would have been the consequences for her doing that? Or how could she resist his good looks? You turned your thoughts, David, straight into action. But there are unintended consequences, both short-term and long-term, for what you did. We read later that the baby of this union dies and that the second baby of this union would become king. It was Solomon. But in this situation, there are cover-ups, lies and plotting, and it infects the whole team. You try to get Uriah to sleep with his wife so that people will think that he's the father of the child. And we know from Leviticus that to do such a thing, to commit adultery in those days, was deserving of death. Then there's the tragic and evil escalation of the sin, ending up in murder. How could David get Uriah to carry his own death warrant to the front line? But he did. And then the marriage to Uriah's wife. Others maybe worked out why this needed to be. just want to spend a few moments reflecting on what it might have felt to some of the other people in the story. Bathsheba, we know that she was beautiful. That wasn't her fault. She was just born like that, and obviously David was attracted to her. She'd been purifying herself at the end of a monthly period, so had not had any sexual relations. Would soon, with David become very unclean, and as we know from the Old Testament law, deserving of death, whether she was the instigator or not. She needs to know um, the consequences of her actions. What's David going to do as a result of making her pregnant? What she couldn't have possibly conceived is that she, that David would have Uriah killed. There's a constant reminder in scripture that um, she's often referred to as Uriah's wife 
rather than Bathsheba. A constant reminder maybe to David and others that in those days, wives were often considered as property. It's wrong, but that's how they were viewed. And maybe they didn't have their own identity as they should have done. What about Joab, the commander of the army? Kings need people um, who will do their bidding and not ask. Some kings not ask, don't, don't want to have too many questions asked. David, it seems, as king, was rather above the law. Joab, complicit in murder, not just of Uriah, but of the troop of men that he sent to the front line with Uriah. Verse 16. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab expends his troops like cheap commodities, pawns, just to get the job done, to get Uriah killed. When you hear the news, I wonder what your reaction is. David, when he gets the news, tells, sends a message to um, his servant Joab, don't let this upset you. Verse 25. What about Uriah? He's a foreigner, a Hittite, a faithful member of a mercenary army, a faithful and honorable husband, and the Bible gives no clues if he knows anything about the relationship that David has with his wife. And I'm going to read a bit from the passage. Verse 6, so David sent his word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him. And then a little bit later on, there's this um, euphemism of washing feet, which means that David encouraged him to have sex with his wife. But Uriah didn't want to do that, nor the bribery gifts were sent. Uriah sleeps, verse 9, at the entrance of the palace. David is... um, probably a bit distraught about it. His plan um, doesn't work. How is it that he couldn't go home? And then Uriah says this, the, verse 11, the ark and Israel and Judah are, are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And he doesn't settle with this. He tries to get him drunk, and that doesn't work. And he still won't sleep with his wife. And then he gets sent back to the front line uh, with this note, with his own death warrant. I think it's heartbreaking stuff. Um, How many of you, when you sort of go into your sort of favorite Bible passage, do you go to this one and focus on Uriah the Hittite? I just think it's just so, so cruel, isn't it? When we're looking for honorable people 
in the Bible, I think he's right up there. He put his life on the line for the, for the, the king that's stolen his wife and soon to steal his life. And I'm just wondering how you come back from something like this. Because like, we're not talking petty sin here that David's done. This is really, really high level stuff. And just a little bit later, I'm going to try and get us to think. Um, if that's the, the high mark of doing bad stuff, and yet David's a man after God's own heart, and your eyes at the peak of having bad stuff done to him. I don't know whether you've any had bad stuff done to you. And it's probably, it could be in this league, but it might not be in this league. Um, how do you respond? How do you walk free? How do both people in this story and all the others involved as well know that God's grace is enough? What does it take? What steps need to be taken in order for us to understand that. We're told in verse 27, but the thing David had done, and I think this is a, an understatement, had displeased the Lord. Had displeased the Lord. Marriage is a sacred thing. This act of adultery causes so much Collateral damage. My New Testament is a little bit stronger because you don't actually have to have done the act of adultery to have done it when Jesus was thinking and talking about it. Yet God's grace is enough. God's grace is enough. God gives us all guidelines about how to behave and um, how to honor him. The Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. And um, some of you probably know this, but um, if you break one of them, it's quite easy to break another. In this story, I'm only just doing the, I'm forgetting the first few, because he obviously wasn't honoring the Lord God with all his heart, mind, and strength. He obviously wasn't loving his neighbor. But um, David, guilty or not guilty, members of the jury, you shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not cover, and I'll give you a bit of detail here, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your male or female servants, guilty or not guilty. How do you come back from that? David is a man after God's own Heart. God's grace is enough. I think for some of us, I'm not suggesting murder, but in my New Testament, even disliking and hating other people, you've almost done murder in your heart. So guilty or not guilty, guilty. And I'm pointing at myself now. And I won't go through the whole list. But we know, again, I reminded people when I was preaching uh, last week in the morning that uh, I think it's Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. 
we might not choose to align ourselves with David, but he's done some stuff and we've done some stuff and God's grace is enough. I don't want you to, I want you just to think, someone might like to come and um, push this blue one here. Have we got anyone that wants to come and help and push the blue? I'm very happy to do the domino thing. Come on then, that'd be great. And we'll make it work, okay? So I want you to think, folks, whether in your life you're in a situation where one thing has led to the other. Grace works in the same way, actually, uh, just in the reverse. But let's, let's go for it. Ah, that's brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. It's not so brilliant if that's your king or your wife's partner, or, 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 or. How do you come back from here? Let me just read you um, the story in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan confronting David. So if you want to follow, I don't know the page number, but I'm going to read it out because it tells it better than I could. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he'd bought. He raised it. It grew up with him, and this is heartbreaking, and his children. It was a pet lamb. It shared his food drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. This wasn't an ordinary lamb, was it? It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who'd come to him, Instead, he took the ewe lamb, the one that drank from the cup and was cuddled and was like a daughter to him, and prepared it for the one who'd come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I'd have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, 
The sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he'll sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. But because by doing this you've shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. I just want to try and wrap this up in some sort of constructive way. I think there's in the, at the heart of the passage, there's an issue about kingship. And maybe the weakness for David and the people, they'd elevated David to a sort of very high level of kingship. And the one uh, level that was never, ever, ever intended for human beings, it was supposed to be God's place of authority over the people of Israel. And they just couldn't settle for that because other people had kings and we need some kings and we need some idols, don't we? And uh, look at our culture, not a lot changes really. But I suppose the sin begins when we be even begin to believe the line, even kings get too big for their boots, if you like, and become proud. And in, in, in David's instance, he just became a bit sloppy. He became lazy. I don't know whether any of this applies to any of us, but if we're wearing the crown this evening and Jesus should be wearing the crown, then I suppose one response is to transfer it into the right place. I think another thing to just reflect on, I don't want to labor this too hard. It sounds, it is harsh, isn't it? But even if in a small way, We've fallen short of the glory of God. As children of God, we are secure, but we do need to keep a short account. And yeah, God's grace is enough, and we can keep on asking for God's grace. But sure, surely a better solution is to ask God to break, in the name of Jesus, the well-trawn patterns of behavior that drag us down and don't bring glory to him. Lord, help us. This evening, I want to hear it for those, even in some small way, and the sin's not important, but um, feel any association um, with Uriah the Hittite. And that image that I read of like someone stealing someone else's pet lambs when they had a whole flock, that's like quite, ooh, that hurts. But if you feel that something really precious to you has been stolen or you've been wronged, then you've got a choice about what you do about it. 
We can feel sorry for the rest of our lives about this. We can hold grievance and even um, resentment and unforgiveness about other people. But the same grace that was given to David, a man after God's own heart, is available to you and me when we feel wronged. And if you want any clues about the pathway to discovering this, and I've never been very good with Lego bricks or anything like that, but I have a hunch that with a little bit of help, can I have a little bit of help? Someone could make these bricks into a cross for me. So, do come and help. It's th- so, if we do it this way, there's three at the bottom and two at the top and two either side, either way. I'm sure we'll get there. I suppose what I'm saying is if we've done the worst thing that we could possibly imagine, to those of you that are truly repentant, God's grace is enough and the path is through the cross and Jesus will forgive us. If we've been wronged more than any of us could imagine and every step along the way, God's grace is enough. If something's been stolen from you that should never have been stolen, I think you've got to give that situation to Jesus and invite him to come in and maybe never quite make up for the loss that you've had, but compensate in some way that you know that you're secure in him and he gives you the grace to go on in a way that's not trapped by the I suppose the haunting memories of the past in this story it feels as though Uriah was completely oblivious to what happened to him and sometimes we can be wronged and we even don't know that we've been wronged And it's not worth worrying about. And we give those worries and those concerns to the Lord as well. We're to be redefined by a God of new beginnings. We're to be redefined and recreated by a God of grace. We're to remember that whatever David did, he did a lot of good stuff as well. He was remembered as a man after God's own heart and may we be remembered as people of God's own heart. How else do we want to be remembered? If we come back to the book of life, what bits by God's grace would you be proud to highlight and what bits by God's grace do you want to be erased? Let's pray the prayer that our Lord Jesus 
taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.